Amen. Although I've only been here a week, I'm learning one thing, and that's I better pay attention to when it's my turn. <laughs> Get to singing and worshiping with you, and I just uh, forget I've got to come up here and say something. And then when I hear uh, Pastor Les sing like that, a song of praise to our wonderful Savior and his leading, um, it sounds a lot like what I sound like in my dreams uh, when I'm <laughs> shouting and singing praise to the Lord. Excited to be able to worship with you as a local assembly. Well, have you ever been disappointed with someone else before? As a new pastor, I have heard you should ask questions that everyone can resonate with at the beginning. This question is like asking, are you a human being? Have you ever been disappointed with someone else before? Perhaps you were hurt because he or she did not do what you expected. You planned the event, you invested heavily in the relationship, but he or she didn't seem to care. Or perhaps they sinned against you and did not seem to understand how it devastated you. Perhaps it's even so bad that the hurt from that relationship carries over to other relationships that you're, you find yourself being skeptical or critical of other people. But may I ask you an even more important question than the one I led with? Have you ever had those same feelings toward God before? Have you ever felt that God disappointed you? I remember not too long ago helping a believer through her disappointment in the loss of her mother. She was greatly, greatly discouraged. But primarily because God had not delivered her mother. She could not understand how God would send her mother through such an ordeal and why he did not heal her. And so in a loving way, she needed to be reminded of a few truths. Things like, God still cares. He is all-powerful. And he knows what he's doing. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. In this chapter, the southern kingdom of Israel needs to be reminded of these same, these same truths. God cares, he's powerful, and he knows what he's doing. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah predicts a time of swift destruction and doom for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Actually, the first 39 chapters in this book are full of warnings of exile and judgment. I've often said that if you could write one large or bold word over the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the word that I would choose would be the word exile. Isaiah specifically predicts uh, in chapter 39, right before our text, that Babylon is going to come uh, along and wipe out the city of Jerusalem and the entire southern kingdom. So that as you're looking in your Bible, in, in chapter 39, verses 3 and 4, we learned that uh, there was a king in, in Judah by the name of Hezekiah. And that Hezekiah had just finished giving a tour of Jerusalem to some strange visitors from Babylon. 
This leads Isaiah the prophet in verses 5 and 6 to proclaim that Israel will be exiled to Babylon and will suffer away from their land because of their sin. Look down in your Bible at Isaiah 39 in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is in your fa- and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Isaiah here predicts a time of great economic distress for the southern kingdom of Israel. Life will be chaos for them. Their altars will be destroyed, their temple will be looted, and they'll finally be carried away as captives to a strange land called Babylon. And once they go to Babylon, they will find themselves every morning waking up in the strange place where people are worshiping false gods like Marduk. And so God leads Isaiah after the prediction of this Babylonian captivity and exile to give us Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah 40 is a chapter that offers words of comfort or hope to the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. Look at the very first words of our chapter, Isaiah 40 in verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort. I personally believe that this chapter is designed by Isaiah and that God leads him to do this to issue words of comfort that will help the children of Israel after they've been exiled and they find themselves in that strange country. He says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. In the first part of this book, often the people are called this people. Or a people. Here, God reminds them through Isaiah, you are my people. God will be referred to in the first 39 chapters often, but often he is described as God. Here, he describes himself as your God. So we come to this place in the holy text of Scripture. Chapter 40 introduces the second half of the book of Isaiah. And if there was one word that I would use to describe the second half of Isaiah, it would be the word restoration. Exile, but then promised restoration by God. And in chapter 40, Isaiah addresses whether God has the ability and the desire to restore Judah and Jerusalem. And he spends an entire chapter reminding them of who God is and what he is capable of doing. This suggests to me this morning that we, when we find ourselves in an overwhelming situation, that our view of God is extremely important. The title of this sermon this morning is, Your View of God is Too Small. I want to draw your attention to the final verses of this chapter. Look with me at verse 27. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Fathers, we approach your holy word today. I pray that you would exalt your own name and glorify yourself in our midst. Dear Father, I would pray that you would increase first our understanding of who you are and then secondly our faith that you're a good God and that you care. Lord, I pray that you would give me freedom and liberty as we go through this text of scripture to articulate what Isaiah would proclaim to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that this text primarily answers one question that would be good for us to consider this morning. The question is, how should believers respond when they're overwhelmed? How should believers respond when they're overwhelmed? And Isaiah's answer to that question, I'm going to summarize in two ways. I've got two points to the outline this morning. First, when we're overwhelmed, we must remember God's character and ability. And I take this from verses 27 and 28. We must remember God's character and his ability. Isaiah encourages Judah to remember at least three outstanding characteristics of our Creator God. Uh, The first one I would summarize in verses 27 and the first part of verse 28 this way. We need to remember that God is always there. Is always there. When Judah is exiled to Babylon, they will feel that God has completely abandoned them. So to comfort them, in verse 28, Isaiah declares that the Lord is the everlasting God. You see that in your Bible? He is the everlasting God. Now, there are many ways that you could describe God, but if you choose this way to describe him, and you use the word everlasting, it speaks of the ceaselessness of God. He, of course, the creator of this world, had no beginning and has no end. He existed before creation and he will continue to exist longer than any object in this world exists. He is limitless in time. He is the everlasting God. But then he adds to that right after that in verse 28. He says he is also the creator of the ends of the earth. He is not only limitless in time, he's limitless in space. God created this vast universe. It's all his. The point that Isaiah would make, and this would be different from the false gods that would surround them and their claims, is that God is not some sort of local divine being. His attention is for everything. He is vast. He created every portion of this universe. He is limitless in space. And being limitless in in time and space, we must realize that God is always there for his children. 
even when and if we feel completely neglected or abandoned in this world, God is always there. Occasionally I get the opportunity to teach small children, and when I do or preach to them, I'll use the illustration, I'll say, I'll ask them, where is the deepest, darkest place you ever could imagine yourself going? You know, with their creative imaginations, they've got all kinds of good answers. Some will say, well, I've got this hiding spot in the basement of my house, and I go into my bedroom, and I go in, then I, then I go in, and I close the door. Then I go into the closet, and I close the door there, and then there's this little cubbyhole, and I go back in there. And I'll say something like this to those children. You could go into the deepest, darkest hole that you could find in this world, and you could close the door, and God is still there. He is limitless. In time and space, there's no time or place in which God does not exist. But not only is God always there, in the middle of verse 28, I take the phrase, he does not faint or grow weary, to to say that he is also always strong. Faint or grow weary. Now, I'm going to talk about that phrase a little bit later, but... Uh, What I would like to do for a few moments is work our way through portions of Isaiah chapter 40 to show you that this is a common theme for Isaiah in this chapter. He is constantly declaring the absolute sovereignty and power of God throughout this chapter. So look with me up in verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In verses 3 through 5, a voice cries out about a highway for the return of the Almighty God. The road for his return is to be straight, level, and free of any obstacle. Isaiah is saying that when God chooses to come and help Judah and Jerusalem, nothing will be able to stop him. He will arrive without fail. He will travel without difficulty. No hindrance in this world could possibly delay him. He will move powerfully and quickly to save them. Then look down at the Bible at verse 7. In verse 7, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the bre- when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. In verse 7, the attention shifts very quickly from the power and splendor of God to the weakness of humanity, and the difference is shocking. He uses this analogy of flesh being like grass. He says, all flesh is grass before him. And when he breathes, when God's spirit breathes, the grass withers. The point of this text is all flesh, whether animal or human, withers before the breath of God. I mean, of all the vegetation that you could think of, any of the plant life. So the very most fragile has to be grass and We are all as grass before him. Humanity cannot stand before the the immeasurable God of this universe. But look at verse 12. This is a constant theme of Isaiah 40. 
these people would find themselves in Babylon, he intends, verse 12, to encourage them as well. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out heaven with his span? Who enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? In verse 12, Isaiah questions, uh, asks questions about the totality of the universe, the water, the land, and all the solar system. And these questions in verse 12 are meant to accent the immensity of God because God can perform tasks that no other being can. How much water is there in this world? Ever wonder about that? I, I might just be strange. I mean, it's just something that I would check into. You know, if you were to ask a scientist that question, they would give you answers like this. They would say, well, water covers about 70 to 71% of planet Earth, approximately. And I, I did some research a few, few years ago, and I, I found that the, the, the best estimate that scientists give about this question is they would say that there, are, there is approximately 386 million trillion gallons of water on planet Earth. You know, give or take a million trillion gallons. Uh, 326 million trillion gallons. If you asked a scientist that question, if he knew, he'd say 326 million trillion gallons. Glad you asked. But you know that if you had the opportunity to ask the creator God that question this morning, he would say, God, how much water is there in this world? He would say about this much. He can measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. The distance from here to the sun, I believe, if I remember in elementary school, I learned 23, I'm sorry, 93 million miles. Is that right? Hopefully. Unless they changed it. (laughs) 93 million miles. If you ask a scientist how far is it from from here to the closest star, it's a 93 million miles. If you ask God, God, how far is it from, like, right here to the end of the universe? He would say it's about that far. Measures the heavens with the span of his hand. Isaiah is proclaiming the greatness of our creator God. Look down at verses 15 through 17. These verses, Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as a dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. These verses, Isaiah asks questions like, how can a drop splashing from a bucket challenge the one who holds all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? Nations like Assyria and Babylon are nothing before God. Or he asks, how can a little piece of fine dust attempt to intimidate the one who can lift entire continents as if they were fine dust? We continue to read in verse 16 there that God's dignity would demand all of the cedars of Lebanon as fuel for his sacrifice. And all the livestock of the nations should be offered to him as a burnt offering. He's a great God, our creator God, with unlimited resources. 
But finally, look in your Bible at verses 22 and 23. There's so much of this chapter I love. I'm just giving you some of the highlights. You could be reading through it this week. But in verse 22, it says, It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Here he says that the rulers of the nations, even if they have monumental egos and are convinced of their own strengths and abilities, they are nothing and emptiness before the one who sits enthroned over the kingdoms of this earth. I think this is a good reminder for us as we consider our choices for chief administrative or executive officers in our own nation. And we seem to, these choices at times seem to grow more and more inflated regarding their own abilities in leading a country. God, however, has a way of deflating or compressing the egos of fallen humanity who will not turn to him and trust in him. Matter of fact, I was reading and research for this sermon. I came across an account of, of the king, a king of Assyria named Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon had the distinct privilege of leading Assyria at its height or zenith, zenith of power, but he was convinced of his own position. Uh, there is a famous quote of his that's inscribed in a monument near his tomb. And he said this. He said, I am omnipotent. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I think he had a pretty low view of self. Ironically, Esser Haddon only ruled 13 years before he was killed when he was applying his own makeup. The scriptures declare that God is over everything, every ruler. I think of the Psalms. I love Psalm 103, verse 19. You can write that down. You don't need to turn there. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. The universal, everlasting kingdom of God. He rules over it all. Perhaps Psalm 29.10 where it says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. As we return to our text, back in verse 23... Of Isaiah 40, it says that God sits over the heavens or the horizon and watches all of the little grasshoppers. Another powerful imagery to describe human weakness. We are weak, finite little beings in his presence. Then going back to verse 28, near the end of that verse, it says that God does not faint or grow weary He is not only limitless in time and space, he is limitless in strength. Now, the way of saying this is his strength is 
tireless. He is always strong. And so he is always strong. But then the third characteristic of God and remembering his character and ability is that he is always right. That's how I take the very last part of verse 28. Look down in your Bible again. Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says, his understanding is unsearchable. I like how John Oswald, one commentator, described this. He said, God will do whatever he wishes in his own time for his own purposes. And what Isaiah is proclaiming to the children of Judah here is that we cannot even begin to fathom God's understanding. His attention is for the world, the entire universe, and we are so local. At best, we can begin to grasp a piece of his divine design and purposes, but we're probably always going to misunderstand or not fully recognize at least a part of everything that God is doing in this life for us. And I think that this is a good reminder for us as well, that phrase. His understanding is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. We can't get it all. I think it's important for us in a setting like ours with a seminary especially that we would be careful. One of the things that I've learned, I've been in theological education for quite a few years now, is that it's very easy to make an idol out of our own minds, our own thoughts. Some believers expect God to fit their grid or their plans, their systems, or their expectations. Remember, several years ago now, Dr. Olala, who, if you come next week, you get the privilege of hearing one of my mentors in ministry, former president and chancellor of Northland Baptist Bible College, Dr. Olala confronted some freshman and sophomore men, a student, who were claiming to have a superior understanding of theology. You know how this goes. They happened upon a few verses of scripture, and then they became convinced that they knew better than everyone else. And so Doc O made a profound observation. He said, he said this. He said, whatever these students came to understand, it was not theology. Because anyone in the Bible who had an encounter with God and came to know him more didn't go around with their chest puffed out and inflated bragging about their knowledge. Instead, They humbly bow their heads in worship and adoration of God and declare their own insufficiency. I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees God. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. Or the conclusion, the the final conclusion of Job's book in Job uh, chapter 42, when Job says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, therefore... I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I often use the illustration of our perception of a river. We study the Bible and form our theological systems, which we think can explain just about anything. But our view of things is like seeing only a little part of the river. Okay, And, and what we view might 
true and accurate. It might be true according to the scriptures, but then what happens is someone comes along and they use another portion of scripture to show us that God is just more than this little channel of the river that I say he is, but that he's also all of this. And it blows our minds and breaks our systems. Don't lose sight of the immensity and the eternality and the absolute sovereignty of our God. You say, how could God be all of these things at one time? And I say, good, now you're finally beginning to get it. You're you're, you're beginning to get it. Our puny little minds can't wrap themselves around the nature and the personality of God. Remember about three years ago, I was putting one of my children to bed. I walked into the room and my my daughter was crying. Now, honestly, I'll have to admit, originally I thought it was a plot. My my kids are infamous for stalling at bedtime. Infamous for hesitating. So I thought it was a a gimmick or a plan. But when I asked her what was wrong, she said that she was overwhelmed by the eternality of God. She asked, how could God have no beginning and no end, and then how could we be here at this time if God didn't have a beginning or end? And then she said, could you make sense of this for me? Well, I responded by telling her that night, right before she went to bed, that it was overwhelming to me as well. His eternality, his unlimited strength, and his wisdom are unfathomable. He is always there, always strong, and always right. And Isaiah could not even imagine how anyone would be able to offer up counsel to God. We must remember his character and his ability when life overwhelms us. But secondly, in verses 29 through 31, when we're overwhelmed by life, we must depend upon him. Verse 29 says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Verses 29 and 30 say that even the youth and strong men will fail, but that God is able to provide strength for the weary. The phrase young men here, I think, it might be in reference to one of two things. It may be that Isaiah has a picture of powerful athletes in his mind that would be chosen to compete in some sort of (coughs) official games for the people. Or probably better, I think preferably better at this time, he has the picture of some powerful soldiers, some powerful young men uh, in the military who could help them. These powerful soldiers would be men who would be trusted to deliver the nation. They were Zeus-like men. They were strong. They would have a sense of destiny and brazen fortitude to pull off just about anything. But Isaiah says, don't be tempted to trust the wrong resources. 
Even young men, powerful soldiers, will eventually fail. So I was reflecting upon this concept uh, this week. I remembered my youth pastor days. So once I preached on this passage. I loved my youth pastor days in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, just down I-64. Well, before I was going to preach on this, I decided to do a little object lesson with the teens. We had a large group of teens. And so what I did was I said, we're going to have a competition to find out who the most powerful man and powerful woman are in the youth group. And so what I did is I chose, I selected the two biggest men and the two um, uh, most uh, powerful, should we say, women um, in the group. And I explained that we're going to have a game. So I took 25 of the other teens, I put them in a center circle in the gymnasium. And I explained that the contestants would each have two minutes to go in and rip apart this group of 25 people and carry or drag them across the end line of the gym to be given credit for that person. Well, one of the, uh, the young men in our youth group was, was a really strong guy. I mean, he lifted all of the time. And <laughs> when this competition started, he went into that circle. And, I mean, he latched on. And, and you know he chose the smallest guys. You know, he's picking off these little guys, picking off all the weak ones. You know, he's grabbing like... Two at a time, and he's getting close to the line. He's not even going to cross the line. He's just like throwing them up against the wall. But what was very interesting in that illustration is they're seeing this object lived out in front of them by about a minute and a half in. This strong man, this powerful young guy could barely move. He didn't even finish. He quit. But God, God cares for millions of stars and billions of people. He never grows faint or weary. And he is even able to give out of the surplus of his limitless strength. Say, Pastor Brent, you've kind of been reviewing a lot of things that I know about God. He has all of these amazing things, but... But what is left for me to do with this knowledge today? What is left for us is found in the one verb of verse 31. There's one thing for us to do with this knowledge. And that is the word, wait. But they who wait for the Lord... Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word wait here is linked in meaning in some texts to a stretched cord that has a tension. It is a strained expectation. The verb is used 47 times in the Old Testament. And one third of those occurrences are used by Isaiah the prophet. Normally, the way it goes for Isaiah, he will say this in reference to waiting for God to do some work, whether judgment or blessing. It's interesting to me, as I did a quick word study this week, I noticed that another third of the occurrences of the word wait are found in the lament psalms, where a psalmist 
is lamenting or mourning over the sins of the people of Israel. Normally, the psalmist has confessed the sins of Israel and feels the judgment of God, but he's waiting. He's longing or expecting something to happen. And for the psalmist, he is expecting for God to work. This type of waiting will not be easy for us because as I, as I scan those 47 uses in the Old Testament, what I learned is that this waiting is not just a passive thing. It's not just that, you know, I'm overwhelmed by some trial or situation in my life, so I just sit back and kill time and let God do something. That is not what is intended by this word. But this kind of waiting means active, daily dependence upon God through prayer and studying his word. As far as I understand it, this kind of waiting also brings a willingness. It's accompanied with a willingness to allow God to do whatever he sees fit to do in my life or the life of my family for his own honor and glory. It's a depending. It's a willingness to trust God and his good plan. And, of course, we realize what happens to those people who do wait on the Lord. The text goes on to say they exchange their strength for God's strength. And they mount up with wings as eagles. I mean, we all know songs about the rest of this passage, right? They they fly and they run and they walk. But the focus this morning is upon God. Have you lost heart in the last few weeks? Has some sinful choice or consequence caused you much depression? Perhaps it has crushed you. I remember a good friend of mine was facing something in his relationship with his wife that was completely overwhelming to him. She was struggling severely, I would use the word hourly, with depression. And was constantly threatening him about hurting herself. So my friend from the church that I was in in Michigan poured out his heart about that situation to me in a very tender moment in my car. What would you tell him? In what way would you try to encourage someone? who doesn't know, even if in the conversation that we're having, if his his wife will hurt hurt herself. How about this? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not be moved. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, How about this one? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous one runs into it and is safe. Or perhaps this week you'll use these verses. The Lord is the everlasting God. 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Men and women, we must allow God's dynamic, destiny-shaping presence to increase our faith this week. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is for those within our assembly who are facing some sort of overwhelming experience in their journey in life. Or perhaps some are bearing under the consequences of sin in their life or the life of another that they love. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They do not know what to do. Dear Father, I pray that you would remind them of your absolute sovereignty. You are always there. You are always strong. And you are always right. Lord, perhaps there are others who are working through some sort of severe physical valley, some sort of disease or battle, Lord, I would pray that you would remind them of your absolute sovereignty, that you are the God who holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, who can measure the heavens with the span of his hand. May they remember that we as flesh are as grass and When you and your spirit blows, everything withers. May we not lose sight of your amazing ability and character. And then, Lord, may you remind us to wait. To wait expectantly and longing, longingly for you to work. And to these groups of people that I prayed for this morning, I pray that you would as well allow them, dear Father, to be able to rest in you, to know that you will do what is right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Listen to this chorus and then I'll have you join me.